Hey everybody, how's it going? How's your how, how was your day at work? Tuesday evening, uh, closer to that hump day, closer to the weekend, closer to other things. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, based out of Sacramento, California. We are 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. Um, it may take us a while because it's a big state, but uh, we, we can definitely get to you. If you're watching from Facebook, uh, you're watching from you know my page or wherever you may be watching from, if you haven't done so already and you like what you hear today, please be sure to hit that follow button and hit a like button. Let, let me know you like the show. Show me some love. If you're at YouTube, and let me aim this. Oh, wrong hand. See? Okay, right there. There's that little ghost down in the bottom right-hand corner, and that ghost is our mascot. And if you click on that ghost, a subscribe button will pop up. And if you haven't done that yet, please be sure to subscribe. We've got over 493 videos over there, and they're on all kinds of different topics, and I think you'll find something that you like. And please do hit that like button. Uh, you can also follow me over on Instagram, ghostygal on Instagram, all lowercase, uh, TikTok under California Haunts, all lowercase, and you can follow us, of course, at YouTube, uh, you know, if, if you haven't, like the TikTok people that come over to see the show, that's at youtube.com forward slash ampersand california haunts radio you can find us there as well we're also on tiktok under cal haunts anyway today um it's a reading night for me uh, because i i really enjoy reading this book even though even though it gets confusing after a while because it's in old timey english and, and and these guys have taken notes and, and each guy takes notes differently and stuff isn't spelled like it is now, you know, like like do in the book is D O E, like as in as in deer doe, right? So, for me to read sometimes, especially like there were missing stuff last time, because she, the author Rebecca Pittman, um, Rebecca F. Pittman took went by court records and county records and different, and different things like that. So, there's missing piece, chunks of this stuff. So last time we jumped, we jumped around quite a bit, but it's an interesting book. This about the Salem witch trials. So anyway, I'm gonna uh, get this thing powered up. I'm, my tablet powered up here so we can get the show on the road, as they say. I'll be reading for a little under an hour today. So just to have to give you an FYI, let me put this over here. I got cords everywhere. And my old tablet takes a bit to power up because, well, it's old like me. I'm hoping for my birthday some, some wonderful person will get me an iPad. We'll see. In the meantime, I'll stay on my Samsung Galaxy Note 8.0. But I want to welcome you guys, and uh, I love reading. I love this, I love this, I love this, but, you know. It's tedious with this book a little bit, but uh, it's, it's a nice enough book. Anyway, uh, well, that's powering up. I've got some announcements to make. I will be in Disneyland Monday through Thursday next week, and I will also be broadcasting live. But that's going to be over on YouTube that I'll be doing that. Make it fair for all you guys to come see me over on YouTube. So if you haven't subscribed to my YouTube channel, now would be a good time to do it. Because we're going to do lives, and I'm going to try and do like six, seven hour lives at a time and take you guys on the rides with me so we can all experience Disneyland together. How's that sound? Sound like a plan? Okay, that's cool. All right. All right. It's cool. Let me get this thing going here. See my little S Pen. Love my S Pen. Don't never leave home without it. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be going out live. So that'll be something for you guys to look out for. And I'll have regular shows. I have some pre-taped shows that are going to be regular shows for that week. But in addition to those regular shows, I'm going to be going out live at Disneyland. So 
that's something for you guys to kind of check out and look, look into. This is a mood. Okay. I don't know if everybody else's galaxies do this, but when I'm in Kindle or any program, I'll get the galaxy powered up and then the screen goes dark like it's trying to find its brain. <laughs> it's the computer's trying to find its brains. Okay, so the book is, and I quote, the book is The History and Haunting of Salem, The Witch, the Witch Trials and Beyond. It's by Rebecca F. Pittman. We have permission from Rebecca F. Pittman to read this, and we also have permission from the publisher. So uh, we're continuing, like, right in the middle of a thing. I don't know where we're at on Sunday, so I'm just going to continue. And for those of you that regularly follow along with this, um, yeah, okay. So let me figure something out real quick. I'm looking at time. Figuring out, okay, uh, okay, stop. Okay, I know where I have to stop. Okay, so uh, we shall continue. Deliverance, uh, this woman named Deliverance had just testified. So we're continuing from there. We see here by Deliverance's own admission that she was present when Abigail Williams came out from the, the parsonage door the day before and told the astonished crowd of villagers about to enter the meeting house that there was a devil's sacrament going on right behind them. Hobbes repeats Abigail's description of the man in a white high-crowned hat and of the, women, uh, of the women witches who were serving the blood red meat and wine. Hobbes does depart from Abigail's story in a few instances. Deliverance is suddenly struck blind when it came time to identify who Abigail was conversing with during the devil's sacrament. Abigail said it was Sarah Cloyce, the devil's deacon. Hobbes could not bring herself to name Cloyce, Possibly because Thomas Cloyce, Sarah's brother-in-law, had been a neighbor in Falmouth, Maine, during the Indian Wars there. She also mentions a solitary gentlewoman from Boston. Tatuba's testimony mentioned two women from Boston and a tall black man. As for Reverend George Burroughs, he now had three different witnesses accusing him of sitting at the head of the Devil's Sacrament. Abigail Williams, Mercy Lewis, and Deliverance Hobbs that he had a dark complexion and was not in favor with Salem Village denizens did not help him. Reverend Paris's pasture was becoming the hot spot for the devil's call to the witches. Abigail Williams had already mentioned it on March 31st, claiming similar deacons serving bloody meat wine as those deliverance Hobbs claimed to see. Williams had added a man with a white high-crowned hat to this more recent meeting, and Hobbs dutifully picked up the ball. For villagers passing the open menu on for villagers passing the open menu open menu <laughs> for villagers passing the open menu I keep doing it don't I must be hungry for villagers passing the, the open men, meadow meadow not menu meadow for villagers passing the open meadow got it on their way to and from the meeting house and in your souls ordinary it may have sent shudders along their spine as they eyed the quiet area. The rutted cart path that ran from Harris's home along the back of Ingersoll's and to the meeting house was not the primary road. It traversed a small creek and ended only a few short feet from the meeting house on what is today Forest Road. Ingersoll's ordinary sat at the corner of today's Hobart and Center Streets. The meeting house was a short walk down the main street from Ingersoll's and a short cut along the cart path from the, from the parsonage. On April 24, 1892, a new young woman joined the group of accusers. Her name was Susanna Sheldon, an 18-year-old who was yet another survivor of the Indian Wars of Maine. Her uncle had perished in the attack on Dunstan. As, as the villages were being ravaged and people slaughtered, a local military commander, Captain Joshua Scottow, flinched at the anguished pleas for the, for the settlers for help. 
he held off sending in troops, fearing he would be leaving other farmers vulnerable to attack. It would be the ruin of his reputation. One of his closest friends was none other than Reverend George Burroughs. Susanna's family continued to suffer from the Indian Wars. Her 24-year-old brother Godfrey died in a battle. Her father died from an infected wound in his leg only a year later. She was left with a brother, Ephraim, four sisters, and her widowed mother in Salem Village. The morning of April 24th, Susanna was attending church in Salem Town. She claimed she saw the specter of Phil English climb over a pew and torment her. She said the specter of a Boston woman was with him. Philip Specter followed her home and tried to get her to sign his devil's book outside the residence of William Shaw. The devil was standing next to English, she continued, and he had dark hair and was wearing a tall crowned hat. Susanna may have worked for William Shaw in his home by Proctor's Brook. Her family home was just south of Rebecca Nurse's farmland. For the next two days, April 25th and 26th, Susanna was tormented again by Philip, English inspector, during the day. That evening, she was attacked by the devil and two women. Demanding to know the women's names, one answered her saying, Old Man Buckley's wife from Salem Village. The other specter was Buckley's daughter, Susanna. Okay, Miss Buckley's daughter. Susanna said the devil had given the two Buckley women, Buckley women familiars to suckle. Hideous, hairless kittens with human ears. She claimed she had refused to sign the devil's book and he had smacked her in the head as the trio departed. On the 26th, Susanna was found screaming and thrashing about William Shaw's woodlot behind his house. Shaw's son found the girl in hysterics, claiming Goody Buckley had snatched her up into the air when she refused to sign her book and dropped her into the, into the sticks. She also said good wife Wits of Boston had forced her way into the Shaw's home and pushed the devil's book toward the girl to sign. Was this finally a name for the strange phantom woman of Boston? Who was this good who was good wife Wits? The following day, April 27th, the specters of Mary English, Giles Corey, and Bridget Bishop accompanied the devil in to visit Susanna Sheldon. As she looked on in horror, they suckled their demon familiars, a yellow bird, a pair of turtles, and a snake. Though they bit her and threatened her, she refused to sign the book. One day later, on April 28th, Thursday, the spectators of Giles Corey and Mary English forbade Susanna anything to eat. When the poor girl finally got a spoonful of food into her mouth, Corey struck her and said she would only eat when he gave her permission. Her hands were forced closed for a quarter of an hour. As she sat there unable to defend herself, the specter of Philip English repeatedly tortured her to sign the book. Ann Putnam Jr. was back on the scene, claiming the specter of John Willard horrified her by showing her the murdered bodies of his first wife and Ann's own sister, Sarah, in their winding sheets. Sarah was reportedly whipped to death at six weeks of age. He threatened to do the same to Anne. This is the first time we hear mention of one of Anne Carr Putnam's babies dying as a result of being whipped. April 30th brought no respite to Susanna from the, tor from the torments of the invisible world. Goody Bishop, Mary English, Martha, and Giles Corey, and the devil showed up to torment the teenager. The specters kneeled in prayer to their mention of one of Ann Carr Putman's babies. Oh, I'm sorry. To me, the specters kneeled in prayer to their leader. While Martha Corey suckled a hairless black pig. It was at this time that an odd confession was made by the specter of Bridget, of Bridget Bishop. According to Susanna, Bishop claimed she had been responsible for the death of John Trask's wife. It was Sarah Bishop who was accused of killing 
Christian Trask, according to Reverend Hale's account. Had Susanna mistaken the two names or gotten a bad tip from one of the other girls? Meanwhile, in Boston, jailer John Arnold was under pressure to update his facilities to accommodate all the new witch prisoners being brought over from Salem Jail as they awaited their trials. He began repairs and charged accordingly to beef up the structure. The prison keeper's house could be rented out by a prisoner with deep pockets, which again is not unusual. Lizzie Borden was kept in the jail matron's apartment rather than the cell during her inquisition for murder in 1892. Elsewhere in Boston, Colton Mather drew his shawl about his feverish shoulders and prayed for God's guidance against these horrible and these horrible enchantments and possessions brought broke forth upon the Salem village. The minister had been in the grasp of flu-like symptoms for months, saddled with his absent father's workload, as well as his own. He worried over the use of spectral evidence to condemn a person as the devil could appear in an innocent shape. He also wished to do for the afflicted victims what he had done for the Goodwin girl in 1689, when he took her into his home and tried to help free her of her demons. He had extended the same offer to six of Salem villages of the Salem villages sufferers, but it fell on deaf ears. All he could do now was pray that his father increase increase Mather and the new charter were almost upon Massachusetts shores. Before the nuns such could arrive back in the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the warrants for arrest of a new batch of witches went out. On the final day of April, the complaint against Reverend George Burroughs was finally drawn up. Jonathan Walcott and Thomas Putnam Jr. saw to it. The list of complaints went on. Lydia Dustin of Reading, Susanna Martin of Amesbury, Dorcas Hoare, I'm not kidding, H-O-A-R, okay, and Sarah Morrill of Beverly, and Philip English of Salem Town, that's Mary's Harry's husband. The accusers were Abigail Williams, Anne Putnam Jr., Mary Walcott, Mercy Lewis, Elizabeth Hubbard, and the newly ordained Susanna Sheldon. Hawthorne and Corbin were kept busy that Saturday, writing out warrants for the arrest. As Burroughs was in Maine, his capture would take a few days. The others were ordered to appear at Ingersoll's Ordinary in two days. The Sabbath would be observed after all, so the Inquisitions would begin at 10 a.m. Monday morning. But before the knock could come on his door, Philip English, being tipped off from someone, fled to Boston to his friend George Holland's house. April of 1692 would go out with the clanking of chains upon the ankles of the accused as their specters freed themselves and flew off to cavort about the countryside. One of the three originally accused witches, Sarah Good, flew into the home of Sarah Bibber, threw back her bed, her bed curtains, and ripped the sheets from Bibber's four-year-old child. John and Sarah Bibber clung to their toddler as the child was taken with sudden convulsions so strong they could hardly hold her. Over in Salisbury, over in Salisbury, Joseph Ring saw the shape of, of the newly arrested Sarah Martin staring down at him while in bed. He felt pinching sensations. John had long been a favorite of witches, it seems. For two years, they would visit him and carry him off to their meetings. Once done with them, they would strike him mute so he could not tell the tale of the things he'd witnessed. The last episode had been the previous August, and he had not been able to speak since. Now, for some odd reason, Susanna Sheldon Spectre's pinch had broken the spell and he could speak again. And so, 
April, with its burgeoning blossoms and promise of fertile ground, ended with many of the villagers' neighbors absent from their plows and gardens. How many more would be cried out, cried out upon? Who was safe in the shining city on the hill? Chapter 21. May, oh my God. May, Maleficium. May, I'm trying. M-A-L-E-F-I-C-I-U-M. Okay. I'm going to call her May M just for the sake of it. The magistrates realized there would be no speedy ending to the witch hysteria. The number of complaints pushed across her tables was sobering. It was obvious this was not what they thought. I you know what? I don't think that's a name. I think that's that's the thing for the month. I'm so sorry. May, I can't even say it. Maleficum. We'll say Maleficum, okay? That's all I, okay? The magistrates, <laughs> I don't know what it is with me in these words. The magistrates realized there would be no speedy ending to the witch hysteria. The number of complaints pushed across their tables was sobering. It was obvious this was not what they thought they were dealing with three months ago with two little girls, when two little girls cried out that they were being pinched and tormented. It should have been an easy thing to ferret out the culprit and be done with it. With the arrest of Sarah Good, Sarah Osborne, and Tatuba Indian, they may have congratulated each other on the speedy remedy to the malady suddenly afflicting Salem Village. But it was with Tatuba's ominous warning that she saw nine names in the devil's book that first harburger of doom sounded. This would not end quickly. In fact, much more than nine witches were already jailed, and as May would prove, the witchcraft outbreak was just getting warmed up. Maleficium. <laughs> Maleficium. I can get that word out. I don't know why. Maleficium is the power to work evil magic. Maleficium. Got it. It's the power to work evil magic. It's the power of evil magic. <laughs> Maleficium. See, I can say that. Maleficium. The Puritans of the late 1600s believed without hesitation that evil walked among them. There was a God and there was his nemesis, the devil. You spent your days in the service of God and did your best to live a Christian life filled with hard work and long hours of scripture study. If you were good, Maleficium, got it, see, the devil and his helpers would pass you by. If you suddenly experienced a series of misfortunes, you would look to yourself and your household to see if some redemption was in order, Maleficium. And if it was apparent your, ha uh, if it was apparent your house was in order, then the sudden loss of a cow, a stillborn child, a burned, a burned barn, or any number of tragic losses would turn one to look at one's neighbor, especially if that neighbor had reason to dislike you. It was that simple and that deadly. The specters of witches were not contained inside Salem Village or even Salem Town. Reports of torturing were coming in from Stamford, Connecticut, Andover, Beverly, Ipswich, Reading, and Boston, and Boston, Massachusetts, and were appearing, and were appearing on a daily basis. Residents barred their doors, said fervent prayers, and hoped the, tri the trials would begin soon. Inquisitions were fine, but until a legal trial could take place, there would be no resolution of the continued torment. The charter allowed such legal proceedings. Was, the charter which allowed the, char ugh, the charter allowing such legal proceedings was crossing the seas and would find its way to Boston on May 14, 1692. Only two, two more weeks. Increase Mather and Governor Phipps would fix this. The villagers had held out hope that this would soon be over. Yet arrest warrants 
flew about the countryside as feverishly as, as the specters of angry witches. Monday morning, May 2nd, dawned with the rumblings of thunder, a precursor to what was ahead for those filling the meeting house in Salem Village. By 10 a.m., the magistrates and scribes were ready for the first prisoner to plead her case. Several of the accused were not there. Philip English was still hiding out at his friend's house in Boston. Susanna Martin of Amesbury had not arrived yet, but was expected any minute. And George Burroughs would have to be brought from Maine. Gossip was already filling the packed room that Elizabeth Hubbard had been tormented the day before on the Sabbath by the specter of old George Jacobs Sr.'s daughter-in-law, Rebecca Jacobs. Another name added to the cold of suspected witches. Never ends, does it? Dorcas Hoare. Don't yell. Or, or, or the H is silent, so it's Dorcas Orr, okay? H-O-A-R. I'm just saying. Dorcas Hoare of Beverly was called in, and the anticipation of another display of his drawing shot through the room. Examination of Dorcas. I'm going to leave it at Dorcas, guys. May 2nd, 1692. The examination of Dorcas Hoare, 2 May, 1692. Several of the afflicted fell into fits as soon as she was brought in Elise. That's what I mean. So I'm trying to read through this. Okay. Several of the afflicted fell into fits as soon as she was brought in Elise Hubbard. Said this woman hath afflicted me ever since last Sabbath. Was seven night and hurt me ever since. And she choked her own husband. Mary Walcott said she told me the same. Abigail Williams a-B-I-G dot dot Williams. Say, this is the woman that she saw first before Tituba Indian or any else. And Put Putman said this is the woman that hurts her. And the first time she was hurt by her was the Sabbath. Was seven night. Susanna Sheldon Don accused her of hurting her last Monday night. Monday night. Abigail Williams and Ann Put Put Putman <laughs> said she told him that she had choked a woman lately at Boston. Elise Hubbard cried, Why do you pinch me? And the mark was visible to the standers by. To the standers by, see what I'm saying? The marshal said she pinched her fingers and it's spelled P I N C H T. This is this is this is what I'm trying to read through at that time. H. Dorcas Hora, why do you hurt these? D. I never hurt any child in my life. H. It is you or your appearance. D. How can I help it? H. What is, what is it from you that hurts these? D. I never saw worse than myself. H. You need not see worse. They charge you with killing your husband. D. I never did. I never saw you before. H. You sent for Goody Gale to cut your to cut your head off. What do you say to that? I never sent D. I never sent for her upon that account. H. What do you say about killing your husband? Note. Asterisk. Susan Sheldon also charged her. Susan Sheldon also charged her that she came in with two cats and brought me the book and fell into a fit and told me your name was Goody Buckley, which is Buckley. Oh, I see the spelling. D. No, I never did. I never saw thee before. H. What black cats were those you had? D. I had none. Asterisk. Mary Walcott, Susan Sheldon, and Abigail Williams said they saw a black man whispering in her ears. D. Oh, you are liars, and God will stop the mouth of liars. H. You are not to speak after this manner in the court. D. 
I will speak the truth as long as I live. All right, asterisk. Barry Walcott, Susan Sheldon, and Elise Hubbard said again that there was a man whispering her in her ear and said she should never confess. Goody Bibber, free from fits, free from fits here through hitherto, okay, Goody, Goody Bibber, free from fits hitherto, said there was a black man with her and fell into a fit. H, what do you say to those cats that sucked your breast? What are they? D, I had no cats. H, you do not call them cats. What are they that suck you? D, I never sucked none, but my child. H, what do you say? You never saw Goody Buckley? D, I never knew her. H, Goodman Buckley testified. Okay, Goodman Buckley. Okay, Good, Goodman Buckley testified that she had been at the house often. D, I know, I know you, but not the woman. H, you said you did not know the name? Note, many bystanders testified she disowned that she knew the name. D, I did not know the name so as to go to the woman. Asterisk, Susan Sheldon and Abigail Williams cried there was a bluebird gone into her back. The marshal struck and several of the bystanders testified that they saw a fly like a male. Okay, that they saw a fly like a male are. H, what did you see? What did you see Goody Bibber who was looking up? Note, asterisk, Goody Bibber was taken dumb. H, what can, what can you have no heart to confess? D, I have nothing to do with witchcraft. H, they say the devil is whispering in your ear. D, I cannot help it if, if they do see it. H, cannot you confess what you, what you think of these things? D, why should I confess that I don't know? Note, asterisk, Susan Sheldon cried, Oh, goody whore, do not kill me, and fell into a fit. And when she came to herself, she said she saw a black man whispering in her ear, and she brought me the book. D. I have no book, but the Lord's book. H. What Lord's book? D. The Lord's book. Asterisk. O said some of the afflicted. Oh, I said O. O said some of the afflicted. There is one whispering in her ears. There is somebody. There is somebody. Okay, will rub your ears shortly. Said the examinant immediately. Immediately. They were afflicted, and among others, Mercy Lewis. H. Why do you threaten they should be rubbed? D. I do not speak a word of rubbing. Here we go. Asterisk. Many testifying she did. D. My meaning was God would bring things to light. H. Your meaning for God to bring thing to bring the thing to light would be to deliver these poor afflicted ones. That would not rub them. That would not rub them. Now we're on reverse side. H. This is unusual in. This is unusual. Ugh, this is, what is it with me today? This is, un, this is unusual impudence to threaten me for authority. Who hurts them now? D. I know not. H. They were rubbed after you had threatened them. Asterisk. Mary Walcott, Abigail Williams, and Elizabeth Hubbard were carried towards her, but they could not come near her. H. What is the reason these cannot come near her, near you? D. I cannot help it. I, I do them no wrong. They may come if they will. H. Why do you see, why you see, they cannot come near you? D. I do them no wrong. Asterisk. Note. The afflicted were much distressed during her examination. This is a true account of the examination of Dorcas Horb without wrong to any party, according to my original characters, from themselves at the moments there of witness my hand, Sam Paris. Dorcas Horb is not the only, is not only accused of murdering her husband, 
Something equally striking appears in this recorded testimony. Abigail Williams, for the first time since her original affliction in February, claims it was Dorcas Orr she first saw before Tituba as her afflictor. She never mentioned this until now. Reverend John Hale had tried to downplay the rumors circulating about Dorcas Orr in the early months of 1692. When the evil hand had been found within the walls of Paris's parsonage, Dorcas had been accused before of fortune-telling in her home in Beverly, Reverend Hale's hometown. Any rumors of white magic from months and years past now resurfaced with new import. With new, with, with new import. Had Abigail mentioned Dorcas to Hale at the time? He was the first minister Paris called to his home when Abigail's and Betty's symptoms worsened in February. Susanna North Martin Susanna North Martin waited in Ingersoll's Ordinary, where she had been brought to await her turn at the meeting house. The 67-year-old widow was not new to witchcraft, uh, was not new to witchcraft, to, uh, witchcraft allegations. Her neighbors in Amesbury and Salisbury have been accusing her of, of malefic practices for over three decades. One such report came from William Brown, who claimed his wife Elizabeth had been attacked by Goody Martin Specter, who repeatedly struck her with special nails and pins. He swore out a formal complaint, which only exasperated the problem. His wife fell into a strange kind of distemper and distemper and frenzy, incapable of any rational action. Two doctors verified Brown's assessment of his wife's condition. Other depositions against Susanna Martin were filed by her neighbors, accusing her of witchcraft. She had managed to dodge the news for three decades. Had her luck run out? Although court documents don't mention the body searches of each witch brought into Ingersoll's Ordinary, it may be assumed that each of the accused were put through the humiliating examination. Several midwives, along with Mrs. Ingersoll, appeared on documents as performing the unpleasant duty as they searched for witches' marks. Constable Orlando Bagley had brought Martin to the, Martin the 20 miles from Amesbury and dutifully left her to the magistrates. Examination of Susanna Martin, May 2nd, 1692. Give me a second here. At least my allergies are better. Okay. The examination of Susanna Martin, 2 May, 1692. As soon as she came into the meeting house, many fell into fits. Hath this woman hurt you? Ab Asterisk. Abigail Williams said it is Goody Martin. She hath hurt, hurt me often. Others by fits were hindered from speaking. Okay. Elizabeth Hubbard said she had not hurt her. John Indian said he never saw her. Mercy Lewis pointed at her and fell into a fit. And Putman grew through okay, and Putman threw her glove into a fit at her. And in a fit at her. H. What do you laugh at? M. Well, I'm hey at such folly. H. Is this folly to see those still hurt? M. I never hurt man, woman, or child. Note, Mercy Lewis cried out. She has she, she she has hurt me great many times, and plucks me down. Then Martin laughed again. Mary Walcott said this woman hath hurt her a great many times. Susanna Susanna Sheldon also accused her of hurting her. H, what do you have to say to this? M, I have no hand in witchcraft. H, what did you do? Did you consent they should be hurt? M, no, never in my life. H, what ails these people? M. I do not know, H. But what do you think ails them? M. I do not desire to spend my judgment upon it. H. Do you think they are bewitched? M. No, I do not think they are. H. 
Well, tell us your thoughts about them. M. My thoughts are my own, and when, when, when they are in, my thoughts are my own when they are in, but when they are out, they are, they are on others. H. You said they're master. Who do you think is their master? M. If they be dealing in the black art, you may know as well as I. H. What have you done towards, towards the herd of these? M. I have done nothing. H. Why is it you or your appearance? M. I cannot help it. That may be your master that, that may, that may be your master that hurt them. I desire to lead my life according to the word of God. H. Is this according to the word of God? M. If I were such a person, I would tell you the truth. H. How comes your appearance just now to hurt these? M. How, how do I know? H. Are you not willing to tell the truth? M. I cannot tell. He that appeared in Sam's shape can appear in anyone's shape. H. Do you believe these, these afflicted persons do not say true? M. They may lie for aught I know. H. May not you lie? I dare not tell a lie if it would save my life. H. Then you will not speak the truth, will you? M. I have spoken nothing else. I would, I would do them any good. H. I do not think that you have such affections for these, for these whom just now you insinuated persons do not say true. M. They may lie for aught I know. H. May not you lie? M. I dare not tell a lie if it would save my life. H. Then you will not speak the truth, will you? I have spoken nothing else. Okay. I'm sorry. It, it, this thing flips back on me. And the devil for their master. Okay. Uh, here's an asterisk. I apologize for that. It'll flip over and flip back real fast on me. See, I need a new tablet. The marshal said she pinched her hands and Elizabeth Hubbard was immediately afflicted. Several of the afflicted cried out that they saw her upon the beam. H. Pray God discover if you be guilty. M. Amen, amen. M. A false tongue will never make a guilty person. Note. Asterisk. You have been a long time coming today, said Mercy Lewis. You can come fast enough in the night. M. No, sweetheart. Note. Asterisk. And then said Mercy and all the afflicted besides. Almost were afflicted. John Indian fell into a fit and cried. It was that woman. She bites. She bites. And then said Martin was biting her lips. H. Have not you compassion on these afflicted? M. No, I have none. Note. They cried out that there was a black man along with her. And Goody Bibber confirmed it. Abigail Williams went towards her but could not come near her. Nor Goody Bibber. Though she had not accused her before. Also, Mary Walcott could not come near her. John Indian said he would kill her if he came near her, but he fell down before he could touch her. H. What is the reason these cannot come near you? M. I cannot tell. It may be the devil bears me more malice than, than another. H. Do you not see God evidently discovering you? M. No, not a bit for that. H. All the congregation besides think so. M. Let them think what they will. H. What is the reason these cannot come to you? M. I do not know. But they can if they will, or else, if you please, I will come to them. H. What was that black man whispered to you? M. There was none whispering to me. Samuel Paris described. Susanna Martin, for the first time during the Inquisitions, turned the tables on the girls. When asked, do you think they are bewitched? She answered bluntly, no, I do not think they are. She then alluded to a, to a fact that the magistrates and all the adults of the village had refused to consider even when two of the afflicted girls had admitted they were faking their fits and calling out names for sport. Quote, If they be dealing in the black art, you may know as well as I. 
she said. Goody Martin was saying the girls were consorting with the devil by their ability to see into the invisible world and view other witches. Perhaps that was why they repelled the devil's book. Their signatures may have already been there. The girls were not distancing themselves from Satan. They were the instigators, alarming the villagers and inviting the devil to make a home in Salem village. It was a dangerous move, and one that fell moot. Hawthorne admonished, admonished Martin and told her God would discover her. Parentheses, find her to be a liar. In parentheses. Quote, all the congregation besides think so. With those words, Susanna Martin's fate was sealed. Sarah Morell of Beverly was also taken, uh, uh, was also a foul mouth. A foul mouth. <laughs> okay. Sarah Morell of Beverly was also a Falmouth Maine refugee. Her father was captured in the Fort Loyal attack and taken to Canada as a hostage. Sarah, her mother, and sister ended up in Beverly. A family that may have been related to them, Robert Morell family, lived for a time with Thomas Putnam's family in Salem. Sarah and her, little, and her sister Mary had been brought into court on charges of, fornic of fornication the summer of 1691 a reputation that did not bode well for those accused of witchcraft by the Puritan members. Sarah Morell's inquest testimony is lost to us, as is another accused the same day, Lydia Dustin of Reading, Massachusetts. Lydia was an 80-year-old widow, older than Rebecca Nurse by a decade. Along with Susanna Morell, she too had long been accused of witchcraft. Although a member of the, of the Reading Church, she had garnered a dubious fame throughout the town. In 1682, one of her neighbors, in a drunken stupor, threw rocks at her daughter's house while shouting, Old Crooked Back Witch, Your Mother You, and All You Company of Witches. While ten years passing may have found the assault forgotten, a new accusation from a reading villager, Mrs. Mary Marshall, found Lydia Dustin held over in Salem jail on the accusation of witchcraft. Warrant for the apprehension of Lydia Dustin and officers return. May 2nd, 1692. To the Constable of Reading, you are, in their Majesty's names, required to apprehend and bring before us Lydia Dastin of Reading, why, of, reading widow, of Reading Widow in the Country of Middlesex on Monday, next being the second day of the month of May, next ensuing the date herself, about 11 of the, of the clock in the forenoon, at the house of Livet Nathaniel Ingersoll in of Livet Nathaniel Nathaniel Ingersoll's in Salem Village in order to her examination relating to high suspicion of several acts of witchcraft done or committed by her upon the bodies of Mary Walcott and Putnam, Mercy Lewis, and Abigail Abigail Williams, all of Salem Village, whereby great hurt and damage hath been done to the bodies of said persons according to complaint of Captain Jonathan Walcott and Sergeant Thomas Putnam on behalf of their majesties for themselves and several of their neighbors. And hereof here you are not to fail at your peril. Date Salem, April 30th, 1692. For us, uh, asterisk note, John Hawthorne, Jonathan Corwin, us, it's reverse. All right. Okay, let me get this in here. Okay. Person, uh, person went to a warrant from... <laughs> that's it. Person went. That's how it's spelled. Person went to a warrant from your honors bearing date the 
the 30th of April last for the apprehending and bringing of the person of Lydia Dasting in obedience thereto I have brought the said Lydia Dasting of, re of reading of reading to the house of Lewitt Ingersoll in Salem Village dated May 2nd Salem Village the second day of May 1692 attest John Parker of reading okay moving on the court wrapped up for the day as they were still awaiting the arrival of George Burroughs in Maine. The four prisoners who had been examined, Sarah Morrell, Lydia Dustin, Dorcas Horb, and Susanna Martin, were kept overnight, possibly at the watch house across, the, across from Ingersoll's. They were transported by cart the following morning to Boston Prison, rather than Salem's. The quickness of being arrested, questioned before the magistrates and sent directly to the prison, must have been terrifying. There was no room for pleadings or arguments once the gavel fell. On the evening of the examinations of the four accused, Elizabeth Hubbard claimed that a little black-bearded man in dark clothing appeared to her and declared he was George Burroughs. He opened a book and thrust it toward her to sign. She refused to sign it, shuddering at the blood-red names she saw scrawled across there. He pinched her and left. It would be as physical from that appeared next. Okay, next. Chapter 22, The Witch's Ringleader. Okay. Fascinating book. The reach of the afflicted girls had many baffled. How could they cry out against people they had never met, from towns they had never visited? It was enough to make a believer of anyone. Surely, those afflicted persons must have a gift of second sight, an ability to see things withheld from normal people, psychics. Yet, even with this belief, the majority of the inhabitants did not link the girls themselves to witchcraft. If it wasn't the devil giving them powers to see into the invisible world, then it was God using them as instruments to weed out the evil among them. For that reason, the girls were, were revered and praised. Were revered and praised. In today's terms, they were superstars. George Burroughs. Reverend George Burroughs had more strikes against him than the other accused witches. He had abandoned Salem Village as the minister years earlier, due to the bickering of the church members and the reluctance to pay him his wages as the reverend. He had incurred a disfavor of the powerful Putnam, Putnam family, and he was the husband of the late Sarah Rook Hawthorne, the sister-in-law of Judge John Hawthorne, presiding judge over the witch trials. There is no conflict of interest there, huh? Mercy Lewis, one of the afflicted girls, most vocal accusers knew him well. Mercy had once lived in this home in Falmouth, Maine, after her own family was slain during an Indian attack. George Burroughs, around 42 years of age in 1692, was a Harvard-educated man who had studied at the prestigious college for a degree in ministry. Two of his classmates were well known to the Salem Village debacle, James Bailey, Salem Village's minister before Burroughs, and Samuel Sewell, who would later condemn the little black minister for witchcraft. Burroughs was married three times. In rapid succession, his first wife had a fisher of Dedham, followed him to Falmouth, now Portland, Maine, after the inhabitants there offered him 200 acres to be the minister. It was a remote location, sitting hard against the frontier wilderness. He preached there for two years until the village was attacked in 1676 during King Philip's War. Burroughs was hailed a hero for helping to evacuate the women and children to Cushing's Island after so many husbands and fathers were slaughtered. They lived on berries and fish until rescue could come for them. Burroughs took his wife Hannah, who was pregnant at the time, 
and their other two children to Salem Village, as had many other war refugees. He had been offered a trial period as acting minister for the village. John Putnam offered them a home while the new parsonage was being built. The accommodations were cramped and, pri and, and privacy scarce. John Putnam would later relate that Hannah had been very good and dutiful, but Burroughs was very sharp with her. Putnam claimed Burroughs made Hannah sign and seal a statement saying she would never divulge his secrets. Putnam complained that Burroughs would often involve his family in the minister's marital arguments. Salem Village offered only heartache for George Burroughs. His wife lost the baby and died during childbirth. This was the second child to die for the minister. Now, faced with the cost of a funeral, he turned to his host, John Putnam, to borrow the money, promising to repay it out of his minister's salary. Putnam loaned him the money, but Burroughs, as stated earlier in the book, was unable to pay it. A lawsuit from Putnam resulted after Burroughs returned to Maine. In the meantime, Burroughs remained in Salem Village within, and, within a year and within a year married the le lovely widow of Captain William Hawthorne of Salem, Salem Town, older brother of Judge jo John Hawthorne, Sarah Ruck Hawthorne. She bore him four more children. When Salem Village lived up to its reputation of slandering and, in and indebting their ministers, Burroughs resigned his post as the village voice of, spirit of spiritual reason packed up his wife and children, and returned to Falmouth, the Falmouth, despite the fact that there were threats of Indian attacks. He was brought back to Salem to face Putnam in court. He nearly missed jail time due to some friends' petitions in his favor. Free from the threat of imprisonment, George Burroughs would never be free from the bad taste he had left in the mouth of the village, in the mouths of the villagers he deserted. In 1689, Falmouth was once again attacked. Burroughs survived, but his wife did not. Her death was rumored to be from childbirth, not an Indian massacre. He, he shipped her remains to Salem Town for burial and moved to Wells, Maine in 1690. Without delay, Burroughs remarried, this time to a woman named Mary, who gave him a daughter. A vicious attack on York, on York, Maine, fueled rumors that Wells might be next. He stuck it out. Burroughs taught schoolboys, preached on the Sabbath, and lecture days help with military and civic duties and administer to the sick and grieving and help build the town. His strength was often reported upon as he fit, as he felled trees, raised barns, and helped bring in supplies from the harbor. George Burroughs' superhuman strength would come back to haunt the small minister. Despite his stature, many people related stories of his, of his prowess. Captain Simon Willard and Captain William Wormall shared their testimonies during the 1692 witch trials that they had heard stories of Burroughs single-handedly hauling in a heavy barrel of cider or molasses from an unstable canoe. He was accused of lifting a heavy seven-foot barrel musket with only his index finger. More stories surfaced about the pretty little man who was never single for long. Almost exotic in his looks with his dark hair and complexion, the short and swarthy minister seemed to hold a fascination for all who met him. Some might say to his wife's detriments. <laughs> okay, sorry, I should continue. Mary Weber, one of Burroughs' Falmouth neighbors during his time there with his second wife, Sarah Ruck Hawthorne, gave testimony that Sarah was afraid of her husband. According to Weber, okay, Sarah told her that she had seen Burroughs chase something that resembled a white calf down the front of Sarah's. 
Her husband seemed to have an uncanny ability to always know what she was thinking and saying, even in his absence. One of their maidservants, Hannah Harris, said Burroughs always seemed to know the two women's conversations, even when he wasn't around. Sarah's brother, Thomas Ruck, recited the time he, Sarah, and George had been picnicking. George had gone off into the bushes to look for strawberries. As soon as he was out of sight, Sarah took the opportunity to tell her brother of her forebodings about her husband. When George returned, he mentioned the conversation and was determined to tell his side of the story. Surprised that Burroughs knew what they had discussed out of his ear shot, Thomas asked him how he knew what was said. Haughtily, Burroughs answered, my God, makes known, my God makes known your thoughts unto me. Burroughs' maidservant, Hannah, did little to help the minister after his arrest. She told all who would listen that she believed the minister hastened her mistress's death by not allowing her to rest after childbirth, but insisted that she stand at the door while he accosted her. She continued to say that her master had only baptized one of his nine children and neglected the customary home prayers. She had, she had admonished Sarah to send a letter to her father in Salem Town, telling of the wrongs of her husband. But Sarah was afraid to. Hannah sent that letter instead. On May 2, 1892, George Burroughs was at dinner at his home with his wife Mary and the children. A knock came at the door, and before any other knew what was happening, Marshal jo Jonathan Partridge and some guards stormed into the home and arrested Burroughs. Partridge had complained about the length of the trip to escort Burroughs from Wells, Maine to Salem Town. He was ignored, and the journey was begun. Gossip rumored that a terrible tempest had ensued to thwart, thwart Burroughs as a tradition. Thunder roared and lightning flashed as tree limbs thrashed and broke apart. The party endured, and Burroughs was brought to Thomas Beadle's tavern in Salem Town. He was kept in a private room upstairs, away from the other prisoners. Some men dropped by to question Burroughs, including Captain Daniel King, a military leader who knew Burroughs from the frontier wars in Maine. King believed in the minister, saying, I believe he is a child of God, a choice child of God, and he believed God would prove Burroughs innocent. Others, including Eliezer Kaiser, the brother, of, the brother of a Salem girl who had long been distracted, said he believed Burroughs was the ringleader of all the witches. Kaiser overcame his fear and did visit Burroughs as he sat in Beetle's locked room. Burroughs, disgusted at his plight and not wanting to be viewed as a local curiosity, refused to talk to the man. Staring at him silently instead, Kaiser's fears got the best of him and he left. He said later that night at his home, he saw a dozen quivering globs of light like jellyfish shooting about in the dark. They disappeared, and a strange glow appeared in the dark chimney of the room. Peering up into it, he claimed to see a ball of light shimmering. The maid backed up his story, saying she saw it too. But Kaiser's wife said she saw nothing. Okay, let me check something really quick. I see a message coming down here. Let me uh, do it really fast. Okay. Ooh, my allergies. Elizabeth Kaiser's deposition against Burroughs. I did afterwards, forbear, the same evening after these words, being alone in one rooms of my house, and no candle of light, 
being in said room the same afternoon, I having occasion to be at said Beatles house and being in the chamber where Mr. George Burroughs was kept, I observed that said Barrows did steadfastly fix his eyes upon me. The same evening, being in my own house, in a room without any light, I did see very strange things appear in the chimney. I suppose a dozen of them, which seemed to me to be something like jelly that used to be in the water and quit and quaver with a strange motion, and then quickly disappear. Soon after which, I did see a light up in the chimney about the, the bigness of my hand, something above the bar, which quivered and shaked and seemed to have a motion upward, and upon which I called the maid, and she looking up into the chimney saw the same, and my wife looking up could see could not see anything. So I did and do very certainly consider it with some diabolical apparition. Due to the gravity of a case instigated against a minister, other magistrates were brought to Salem Village to assist Hawthorne and Corwin. Seated beside the two men at the meeting house table were William Stoughton and Samuel Seawall. Several, di several dispositions against the minister had been procured, along with a letter from Thomas Putnam to the magistrates telling of his fears on behalf of his beleaguered daughter, Anne Putnam Jr., that there were disturbing events happening, a wheel within wheel, hinting that a minister of God was within the grasp of the devil. The crowds were out in force to witness this former minister's examination. A man who had thumbed his nose at their tormentors and moved away. What did Judge Hawthorne think of this man before him? Here was a man that both Susanna Sheldon and Ann Putnam had sworn to see, sworn to seeing the specters of the dead wives standing before them, accusing Burroughs of murdering them. If Judge Hawthorne believed the two girls, despite the contradictions in their testimonies, Sheldon said the dead wives said Burroughs had choked and smothered them while Abigail claimed they said he had stabbed and strangled them. Then he believed Burroughs was guilty of killing his former sister-in-law. For the man with renowned strength, who had taken on Indians' frontier hardships and acted as the savior of the leader town, it would only take a handful of young women to bring him to his knees. All right, guys, that's it for today. Finally ended a good spot. I'm sorry. Um, if you've read this, if, you know, if, if anybody's read this book by chance, You'd understand the struggle is real <laughs> getting through it. Wow. It's a great book, though. I mean, to see exactly how they accuse these people and, you know, the, the the horrible things that were going on and the fact that the judge now with this this poor pastor, that this poor pastor that's on trial now, you know, the judge is related to to one of his wives and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, it's just insanity. Okay. Anyway, um, thank you for coming. Thank you for listening tonight. If you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. Equal opportunity here at California House Radio. Tomorrow, my guest is going to be our old friend, Stan Gordon, who's going to be talking about um, cryptids and UFOs. So that's going to be our topic tomorrow. And that show will be at 5 p.m. 5 p.m. I can know that. I think it's 5 p.m. Ah, okay. Anyway, check the schedule. I think it's 5 p.m. or 5.30 he's going to be on. we got some weird schedule changes going on. But anyway, I will see you tomorrow at... Uh, yeah, that time, and I'm going to go ahead and put an announcement out about that. It's probably already on Facebook, I think. So you guys can check that out. Uh, it's already been posted. But uh, thank you very much for coming tonight, and I really appreciate it. I'm sorry for the mistakes while I'm reading, but, wow, it's something to read, uh, you know, especially the testimonies and, 
and the court stuff going back and forth, the, the way they're written, it just it gets, it gets really jumbled and confused. But thank you so much, and I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a great night.